Welcome to Asia New Horizons, where law enforcement practitioners and academics get together to share knowledge and ideas to shape the future of crime analysis. My name is Owen Mason Johns. I am currently the head of intelligence and investigations for Kairos Group, uh, and we are a full spectrum intelligence and security consultancy company. Prior to this, I spent most of my career in the military. Uh, I was a military intelligence officer. I specialized in counterintelligence in particular. Um, I did a variety of jobs, including brigade jobs in the UK, but predominantly focused on counterintelligence deployed, mostly in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. I left the military, crossed the Rubicon, and I'm now a private sector intelligence officer. Career you've had. Did you enjoy it in the military? Yeah, weirdly, I was, I was talking to friends about this last night, and I think the army is a good thing. Broadly, everyone's got their own reasons for leaving, but the you know, the, the, the in corps served served me and served us all well. I think that like, we you, you have the opportunity. You get some really cool training, and probably most importantly, like you command soldiers, which is the best bit of it. But I think you you certainly come out the other side of it increasingly kind of probably look back on the training you've had and like the the experience is sure but actually it's like the, the really sad stuff like doctrine and all that kind of stuff that you get sort of aggressively forced down your throat during various training courses that actually you probably wish you'd spent more time paying attention to at the time uh, but no it's, it's it's pretty cool you get to go to some some fun and pretty inaccessible places which is cool yeah and so when you was in uh the um army you you were managing teams am i right yeah, so the, the in is slightly different to other other cap badges and regiments in the British Army and that as, as a junior officer you commission from Sandhurst and if you join the infantry or the cavalry or something like that, you'll be a, a platoon or troop commander and probably have 30-ish soldiers under your immediate command and you know be supported by both senior and junior NCOs. Um, in the intelligence corps, that's slightly different. You command much smaller teams. So you know, typically as a section commander, when you leave phase two, say your specialist intelligence training, your, your first job, basically, you command kind of you know, anywhere from kind of eight to 15 people. So it is smaller, but you end up working in, in much more small, what's that, much more close-knit teams as a result. Um, so the kind of the bond you forge with your soldiers and the relationship you have with them is, is very different, I always found, and it's kind of a much more a much more personal one. Certainly, the relationship you have with kind of your your senior analysts and your you know your 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 senior NCOs who are supporting you more more than anyone. You do get you you, you forge an extremely close bond with them. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask you. Like, how are you finding that sort of transition from, I guess, one spectrum of intelligence to to the other, and how they are in fact quite different in some aspects. So, how how are you finding that sort of transition? Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. I think like the, the the army sets its own goalposts and it, it prides itself on leadership. And I think if you ask a lot of people candidly, the reason that a lot of kind of officers of my cohort left and people who really did believe in it is that the 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 big army isn't terribly good at, at living up to its own hype. It, you know, it's, most people now stay in the military because they consider it a career, not a vocation. And that's something that's fundamentally at odds with putting soldiers first. So I think that is probably why a lot of people left. In terms of what that transition's felt like, you're right, it is, it's strange because you don't have that hierarchy that we're all used to growing up with. So you've got to, you know, do your, you manage people in a different way. Uh, and equally, the kind of, there is that commonality of purpose that you have in the military that's pretty cool. And everyone's been through similar training and everyone's there to do the, you know, the same kind of thing, uh, which isn't necessarily the case in the private sector. You know, we're, we're lucky we've got a great team now. Um, and actually, most people do come from a military background. But 
actually it is one of those things where you know we we have interns come through our training pipeline and you know interviewing people from kind of a really broad church of backgrounds and it's actually really nice and it's really refreshing kind of seeing you know an enthusiastic 22 year old who's come from marketing who really wants to get into the world of intelligence as opposed to those of us who've been doing it for a little while i just wanted to know whether during your time whether that being where you are now or in the past you saw intelligence failures or things that you didn't necessarily not agree with but didn't understand the process or, or the end goal the objectives of what they were trying to do at the time um because I've I've done a bit of work on intelligence failures before especially when I was doing my master's I based my dissertation on this um and there are quite a lot of intelligence failures um and I just wanted to pick your brains to see if you've ever experienced anything or things you just don't really agree with necessarily in the past or, or present yeah, I, I enjoyed our, our nerdy pre-chat about this. Um, I it's, it's one of those things. So when when I I remember sort of, and it kind of sticks out in my mind, but the the, the first day of when you do your um, like specialist intelligence training, so as a junior officer at Chipsand in Bedfordshire, the then branch warrant officer, who's you know, an incredibly experienced guy, stood in front of the room and said, "The reason that everyone has to go through what by that stage was a, a very much a reinvigorated course was that." in the kind of, in, in the aftermath of Operation Herod, so the, the obvious initial commitment to Afghanistan between sort of 2001 and 2014. Um, in the aftermath of Herrick, there was going to be a point at which it wouldn't be the person, that, you know, the, the, the pointy end holding the thing that goes bang and doing something wrong that was hauled over the coals in some sort of inquiry or audit. You know, eventually someone would look at the intelligence failures for when, you know, fundamentally assessment goes wrong. And as a result of that, Bad things happen, and I think it's it's a really difficult line to tread because you know I don't know anyone that says works in intelligence that just that's deliberately got everything wrong. Let's be honest, um, and it's it's yeah, this is why we we qualify assessments with things like you know the yardstick probability and all the rest of it. You know, a good a good intelligence analyst will never say that you know something is going to happen. They'll say that almost certain because it gives them that little bit of fudge factor or the off chance they're wrong. Uh, and we make low, medium and high confidence assessments, depending on what it is we're talking about and how well we learn the subject matter and how much information we have available. But I think the the kind of the, the recent example of the, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan of, of all NATO member countries, not just the UK and the US, um, has probably highlighted a, a pretty impressive intelligence oversight. And I think it's what's really interesting there is the fact that you know and again i'm i'm on the other side of this now and i'm sure it wasn't true everywhere but on you know in in the public domain all we saw bandied around was that 90 day figure um in terms of timelines withdrawal and everything else and clearly that 90 days kind of pretty rapidly became 72 hours and then everything got a little bit untidy after that um but i think in terms of kind of you know, orders of magnitude of the wiser intelligence community being wrong in inverted commas, which you can't see me doing. Um, I, think, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say people got it wrong because there will have been, you know, analysts within that community who were shouting from the rooftops that 90 days was a colossal overestimation of how long it would take uh, a force like the Taliban to be able to, you know, essentially ferment insurrection again within, within Afghanistan. Um, but I do think there is kind of a, there's a moral component to this as well, right? That somebody at some stage has to essentially have the balls to stand up and say, I think that's wrong. And yeah. you know, there, will, there will be implications of the assessment we make being wrong. And I think it's, you know, this, this may be that watershed moment of 
if if it was genuinely the case that you know if you if, to go back to be a proper learner go back to the intelligence cycle if if the collection was wrong so the access to information that was generated was genuinely saying 90 days if the processing was wrong so the analysts were you know pulling together and creating all of that information turning it into intelligence and they all firmly believed it would be 90 days and then you know it was disseminated at all levels you know both at, at the highest levels of security classification and in the public domain that people genuinely believed it would take 90 days then that's all done in good faith and i don't think you know, that calling people over the coals for that is good because it undermines analysts willingness to, to make judgments and without those judgments being made activity can't happen but I do think if it was that wrong, you know, that at some point people are going to have to look at what's happened and, you know, figure out why it was so wrong. Whereas if it's simply a, an issue of classification or, you know, communication whereby those with the real inside track were fully aware it was going to be 72 hours, not 90 days, um, then that's less of an issue because, you know, there, there doesn't need to be an inquiry into that. But I think the kind of the split between publicly available information, what, what people are aware of and, and what necessarily might be known at higher classification is, is always really interesting in these scenarios yeah absolutely well thanks for answering that i was i was, I was trying to dig uh <laughs> dig deep um but no I, I completely agree um so this part this next part of the podcast is really really important um to me um as you know and i just i want to have a conversation if it's okay with you around the private sector intelligence versus the public sector intelligence and the difference from your perspective uh for, for the both both of them um so yeah what do you think i i, I do think there's a difference like right? sort of this is this is always the the difference between things you say in a pub and things you suddenly realize you're saying on a podcast um that i I, I do think that on if take, take the public side first, that you you have access to the full suites of intelligence collection disciplines, you know, broadly speaking, in and SIGINT, human and all um, you know, broad broad strokes. Because of that, you analysts get higher classification reporting, and they oftentimes, and I, I've certainly fallen foul of this myself as an IO make judgments based on stuff that should be corroborated and don't go around digging for extra information you know you kind of take it as read and actually that kind of curious and like interrogatory mindset doesn't necessarily ring ring true and perhaps pull through as much as it could do uh that said you know i think i think public sector analysts are very good they're very well trained and you know seeing a well-oiled incel do its thing as i've been fortunate enough to to be a part of historically is 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 a is, is a very impressive site to behold and they produce some awesome outputs um, but i think that the key difference therefore is that having having crossed the divide and now sitting on the other side private sector analysts have to work a damn sight harder for their information because they don't have the same level of established collection infrastructure so i think and um, to take us as an example you know we it's something we very much pride ourselves on as a company, uh, as a discipline that's constantly evolving. It's something in a huge community out there online and do, people do some great stuff, both commercially and for benevolent causes. But I think that community has, and you can take the example of the Salisbury poisonings, that you know, that was that was you know, the investigation obviously led by elements of the UK Gov who cited it in whatever time frame they did. But the the Aussie community got to the same answer in about six weeks, uh, and that's hugely impressive when you consider mm-hmm. the scale of, of collecting capability that the UK government has at its disposal versus fundamentally people with a sense of curiosity and laptops. And I think if you were to able to kind of harness the experience, the curiosity, and the 
just the enthusiasm of the Aussie community and overlay that with the expertise, the experience, and you know, the access that you have in the public sector. I think I think somewhere in the middle lies intelligence, Shangri-La. Yeah. What about um, the attitudes of analysts or, you know, uh, the attitudes of any personnel that's working within these organisations from both sides? Have you seen a difference in that? I mean, have you seen a difference in your attitude or motivation towards the work you're doing currently to where you were previously? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so much attitude as you can get a lot more done in the private sector because you're not constrained but I think the, the benefit of the public sector therefore is that because you don't have those sorry the private sector because you don't have those constraints everything we do is you know auditable 100% legal and we you know, we as, as well as priding ourselves on Aussie you know we, we also pride ourselves on the fact we can do everything we do evidentially if it ever does need to, to come to that um, but equally there are certain things where you do just have the agility to get more done quicker and that's really rewarding and I think the key difference is that, you know, from a, from a military perspective, a lot of what I used to do, a lot of what, you know, the great majority of what happens still is analysis and assessment rather than investigation. And I think that last part often gets missed. Whereas yeah. what, what we do now is, is because of, you know, I've already touched on the, the lack of established collection architecture and infrastructure, we have to go out and hunt for the information that we find. So that investigative stuff is, is really cool. It's really rewarding. It gives you the opportunity to be creative and kind of, you know, try new things out and something go wrong, something to go right. Um, yeah. And, you know, when stuff does go right, it's really rewarding. But I think for, for, for analysts, I hope at least that actually, you know, for, for our team and for our guys, that, that gives them the opportunity to, to, to learn and to grow and to be more creative than they have been historically. They've all got incredibly strong analytical backgrounds. And some of them are, you know, learning how to code with incredible rate of knots, which staggers me every day. Um, and speak weird and wacky languages and do, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And actually all of those things you can kind of, you can weave into the way you approach something and you can bring to bear in a really effective way that makes us a richer tapestry as a team and make the product we produce better, um, often in a way that you can't exploit the same level of talent as effectively in the military because the system doesn't let you do it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Have you ever like brought this up before? I mean, I guess it's quite frustrating. Have you ever had discussions or do you know of anyone that has had discussions about this and like around constraints and stuff? In a, in a, in a formal sense in the military? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Um, no, it, it's, it's mostly the kind of stuff that we kind of chat about in the pub or over lunch or which is which is on us, to be fair, you know, for, for all of my misgivings about certain elements of, you know, individuals who I've already touched on as they need to labor that point actually there is kind of a an emphasis on you know, junior commanders junior officers in, in this example so you spoke a bit about OZINT um obviously I think we know what, what it is um but we don't necessarily know you know what it what it isn't and what it doesn't do so could you just explain that a little bit more and I'm guessing do you use this in your within the organization you work for now is it something you use yeah, definitely. We are, yeah, we are, we're huge proponents of OSINT as a discipline. And um, we, we believe massively in the power of it. And I think that, you know, done well, it has done and continues to deliver some extraordinarily effective results. Um, but I think the way we characterize it as a company, anyways, it's, it is more than, it's, it's, it's Google Plus. It's, it's a lot more than that. I think 
Historically, people have, and to, to, to be a doctor in laws to go back into the clear difference between intelligence and information. And, um, you know, open source information, OSINF, if there is such a thing, is the kind of thing that people cultivate from pulling together of images and, you know, potentially looking at someone's social media profile and deriving some kind of low level insight from that. And that probably starts to, to bridge the gap between the information and intelligence stuff. But the OSINT, or open source intelligence, um is 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 where we you know where we focus and and where we believe a lot of our capability lies and i think the the, the key sort of defining factor of ozint as opposed to you know publicly available information is that it is intelligence it's processed information that's drawn together by analysts to understand the context and can add value and derive assessment and you know second third fourth order effect and actually turn it into something of value so i think you know the the kind of the kind of stuff we do on that front is is changing every day and we're always out there kind of on the lookout for, for new techniques and the ways in which we can we can do things better um, and we've you know we've, we've, we've started a, a blog post series that we've, we've been running on the website about this hopefully in a bit to give people a bit of, bit of insight into to how it works and what it can deliver done well um, and I, I think our view has always been that you know it has to it has to be analyst led uh, I think you know, any any intelligence has to have a human in the loop much as people might like to believe that computers can do everything that's that's probably not our philosophy as a company um so yeah on the other point, yeah, I, I suppose a really good example would probably be um geolocating images for instance you can um see so, you know, figuring out where a certain post is is taken and then there are myriad ways of doing that you know the the, the, the really simple way is of course to look at the image and pick out key landmarks in that image and see you know what what you can find that potentially correlates to something in time and space that you can then cross-reference and understand where it is but there are other ways of doing it if you can see you know, a sign on the shop front you can then you know search for that image on something like google maps and then look at the street view imagery and overlay the two and um, you can use chronolocation techniques to kind of you know understand whether you know the, the path the, the path of the sun given time and date of the photo uh, most social media platforms now really let this data, so the metadata that, that geotags an image and, and highlights, you know, things like timestamps and um, lat longs and any kind of information like that. But it's it's always worth you know trying to see if you can pull access data because if you can, that gives you the kind of technical correlation that, that proves where something is. And I think that hopefully as an example starts to articulate, you know, what wasn't isn't is looking on the internet once and seeing if you can find a thing. What it is is you know taking creative people and we're very lucky that we've got a load of, of analysts and investigators who are just that um and you know let, letting them look at a problem and kind of approach it from a variety of different angles uh and literally leverage all of the tools at their disposal that essentially sit on a laptop screen in front of them and see see what the best way of figuring out the answer to the question is it's you know, it's, it's a really fluid approach and that's that's really refreshing in that you don't you don't impose a kind of yeah, we we don't, for instance, have, and again, I'm doing the inverted commas thing that we can see. We don't, for instance, have an investigative process that we train our analysts to go through necessarily. It's all about furnishing people with a mindset and a tool set. It is an extensive tool set. They will say that much. That means that when they're faced with a problem, they have you know a, a, a plentiful amount of arrows in their quiver. So if they try option one and that doesn't work, you keep trying different things, and you can go kind of. 10 orders of effect down the line, possibly more, eventually one of those things will, you know, elicit a result. And that's that's really, really rewarding. Yeah. No, you said something really interesting there. It needs to be, um, you know, 
analyst led and I think that's an issue that we see a lot of and knowing that you don't necessarily have a structure per se is really refreshing um and you're allowing the analyst to sort of lead it and tell them what you, they need to get to that to, to reach the, the goal the end goal that you're I guess you're setting um so I want to know more about this organization you work for and I think everyone else is probably listening wants to know a bit more about what you do how you do it, obviously don't give too much away, um, and how, if they wanted to get involved with your organisation, how could they go about it? So, as I, as I touched on, we are, we are a, yeah, what I would term a full-spectrum intelligence and security consultancy company. What, what does that mean? It's basically people come to us with questions that they can't find the answers to elsewhere, and we find the answers for them because we've done it for a very long time and intelligence discipline and intelligence doctrine is, is fundamentally I, yeah, I'm a firm believer that it's pretty universally applicable and actually all of all of that really great stuff that I and my colleagues learn either in the military or in law enforcement or in other backgrounds uh, across across government employment learns we can bring to bear in a very very effective as I said like and creative is probably the key word here creative fashion to answer answer things answer questions for our clients so what do we do we we do an awful lot of, of research due diligence investigations we do kind of full spectrum investigations that is predominantly OSINT but we have you know a wide variety of, of other sources for our information you know physical surveillance human intelligence that sort of thing and um, we operate kind of fully internationally on that front and um, we we do online vulnerability assessments so looking at people's profiles and online footprint and for training consultancy periodically we do a lot of consultancy we we try to steer away from the training honestly because we we're fundamentally practitioners and we you know we i think it's a really interesting conversation around training providers versus practitioners because where we do do training it's something you know, we're, we're willing to do the reason that i think that works well is because we're out doing the stuff every day we're always current um yeah and that's that's sort of us really we we work we we work with a charity as well um, and we're keen that the analysts and the investigators have time to to dedicate pro bono a few days a month wherever possible to a good cause and actually the, the Aussie community is kind of all about you know aggregating capable people with subjectivity aside hopefully benevolent agendas and, and making the world a slightly better place as a result so we're you know we, we try to support that um, as much as we can and yeah, that's that's really us, the company. We sort of yeah, as I said, we you know people people come to us with questions, and we hopefully uh, can 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 give them the answers to those questions, solve their problems, and put put our clients back on the front foot. You know, fundamentally, I think you know, we're all intelligence noses and probably believe that knowledge is power. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, can anyone? You say people can come to you and ask um, for help. So, we're talking about police forces, law enforcement agencies, just anyone within the intelligence community. Yeah, I mean, not not just within the intelligence community. Our our clients are, you know, obviously, I, that's not something I can I discuss in detail. Yeah. You know, essentially, confidentiality of our clients' information is is paramount to what we do, but. You know, we our, our clients come from literally everywhere. They aren't just in the intelligence community. It's individuals, organisations from all walks of life and all sectors and all backgrounds. And you know, it's, it, people fundamentally come to us when you know, they are under pressure for one reason or another. And our raison d'etre is to kind of, you know, help them navigate that initial pressure situation, provide them with the insight thereafter. And then depending on their end state, 
stand next to them and partner with them to put them back on the front foot in, in whatever guise that takes. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing great work. Um, and I'm definitely going to be in touch with you again um, because what, when you were talking, there's just so many ideas that go around in my head that we could potentially talk about on another podcast or maybe a live stream uh, for our audience. But it's great what you do, and I really appreciate you coming on um, and talking about what you do and your your experiences. Because um, that's that's really, like you say, knowledge is uh, power, and learning of other people is just such you know great information to, to have moving forward. Um, do you think you've said everything? Do you think you've done the organisation justice? Anything you want to add? I hope so. Um, we'll have. find out. Um, <laughs> no, I think, yeah, as, as, as I'm sure everyone says these things, you know, I, it's a military career is a really interesting thing. And it's, yeah, I did not for a second have a long one. There are lots of people who do an awful lot longer and contribute an awful lot more than what I did. Um, I was very lucky and I got to work with some cool people, go to some cool places and learn a lot of interesting stuff. And I hope that kind of translates to what we now and again, I'm very fortunate in that I, I work with a load of people who are all awesomely capable and we get to do some really cool stuff and we're growing really quickly every, every day when something cool or slightly out of the ordinary lands in you know a group mailbox and we get to take on a different and challenging project it is yeah it, it's the kind of thing that you really want to do when you get into this kind of world because it's 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 the same reason I think most people say they, they probably do it. It's it's challenging, problem solving, and, and no two days are the same. So it's 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 cool. No, it's great. And you mentioned you have a blog. I'm going to ask you to send me that link so our um, listeners can go on that and, ke- and keep up to date with what you're doing. Um, and I'm also going to put a link up to the organisation, also a picture of yourself. So they can see who's talking and a bit about you. So if anyone wants to get in touch, um, they can. But thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely great. No, thank you for having me. It's been awesome and hopefully I haven't bored everyone to tears and apologies for that. <laughs> and now let's get to this episode's science snippets for analysis with me, Suzanne Knabe-Nicole from Police Science Doctor, main burglary deterrent. Burglars were asked what the main deterrent was when deciding which home to burgle and it was believing that the house was occupied. You'll find the link to the original article in this episode's show notes.